0: amen what a what a good service it has been already and as I get set up here before before we start into if you're not if you're not sure what we're going to be doing we'll spend the next four sermons so this week and next week going through the book of Jonah it's four chapters it's not very long, but before we get to that, I just want to say a couple of things uh, on the fall of roe v Wade as the first thing is that we, especially as Christians, need to recognize that that was not a Supreme Court decision that was god 's decision to cause that to fall, and we rejoice that it did and yeah, constitutionally that reverts the matter back to the states. Missouri happened to be the first state in the union to make it illegal. And that's a good thing. And I believe it was June twenty fourth, 2022 is when the decision came down. And in the days and weeks after that, I all I could think of and all I could think about was the fact that because it fell and because we had um, an attorney general who signed and effectively implemented a law banning it, all I could think of was that there are now babies being born who otherwise would not have been. And it's easy to think about numbers as statistics and We're very statistically minded these days, but they're real living human babies that were born and who will go on to live and perhaps become preachers and revivers and reformers in the United States because ultimately God decided that that was not going to stand any longer, and I'm grateful for it. I also should have gotten a rundown on how to use this before, before we started. Hey, look at that. I'm going to guess it's forward for forward and back for back. So Jonah is the book that we're studying. All right, I might need a rundown real quick. Which one is it? To go forward. Turn it yep, <laughs> I did. There we go. Jonah, an introduction to the book and an exposition of chapter one. It's a long title. Um, hopefully it's not as a super long sermon, um, but we're going to be going through Jonah, and I want to do an overview of it so that we get kind of Firm footing in the whole book i 'm um, I'm not I'm, I promise i 'm not going to steal from uh, the sermons tonight and next week, um, but I want to get an introduction down and then we 'll go through chapter one. It is a very, very intriguing and interesting book and i 'd like to walk us through that this morning, but before we do let 's let 's pray, Father God, we are again so grateful for the time that you 've given to us this morning, and um, I personally am so grateful for the book of Jonah and uh, what, what you've had recorded in it, and I uh, pray that this morning would be a blessing and that it would uh, transform our minds and that we would be edified by it and that we would take what's in your word and apply it to our lives and that we would be bold proclaimers of your word in our neighborhoods and in our families and in the world at large. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Jonah chapter 1. We're going to go ahead and read the whole thing. It's short. It's 17 verses. So if you want to turn there, feel free. I, don't, I won't have it up on the screen. But Jonah chapter 1. And there is a word of Yahweh to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Rise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim against it that their wickedness has come up before me. And Jonah rises to flee to Tarshish from the face of Yahweh and goes down to Joppa and finds a ship going to Tarshish. And he gives its fare and goes down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the face of Yahweh. And Yahweh has cast a great wind on the sea, and there is a great storm in the sea, and the ship has been reckoned to be broken. And the mariners are afraid, and they each cry to his God and cast the goods that are in the ship into the sea to make it light to them. And Jonah has gone down to the sides of the vessel, and he lies down and is fast asleep. And the chief of the company draws near to him and says to him, What are you doing, O sleeper? Rise, call to your God. It may be God considers himself of us, and we do not perish. And they each say to his neighbor, Come, and we cast lots, and we know on whose account this evil is on us. And they cast lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. And they say to him, now declare to us, on whose account is this evil on us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, seeing you are not of this people? And he says to them, I, a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men fear a great fear, and say to him, what is this you have done? For the men have known that he is fleeing from the face of Yahweh, for he has told them. And they say to him, what do we do to you that the sea may cease from us? For the sea is more and more turbulent. And he says to them, lift me up and cast me into the sea. And the sea ceases from you. For I know that on my account this great storm is on you. And the men row to turn back to the dry land and are not able For the sea is more and more turbulent against them. And they cry to Yahweh and say, Oh, now, Yahweh, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not lay innocent blood on us. For you, Yahweh, as you have pleased, you have done. And they lift up Jonah and cast him into the sea, and the sea ceases from its raging. And the men fear Yahweh with a great fear, and sacrifice a sacrifice to Yahweh, and vow vows. And Yahweh appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah is in the bowels of the fish three days and three nights. Just to give an introduction before we get into chapter 1 proper, we should look at some of the historical context and a few facts about the book that will shed some helpful light on the narrative, I think. This will be approximately half introduction and half message, but I want to frame the book well before we spend the next number of sermons in it. So, Jonah was written somewhere between 793 and 758 B.C., which would have been during the reign of King Uzziah in Judah, who reigned from 783 to 742, and King Jeroboam in Israel, who was king from 786 to 746. Jonah was a contemporary of Amos, Hosea, and Zechariah. And there's good reason to believe that Jonah is the author, not just because the book is titled that, Um, but two reasons I think that are important is one, there's not really a whole lot of textual reason to think it was anyone else. There's no other, there's no verse that says this was written by so and so, this was penned by whomever. And two, there's record of Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 when he is alone in the fish. I don't think anyone was in there with him to know what he was praying in there, Um, but there's record of that. The author also knows what was said on the ship to Tarshish, and the author also knows what Jonah says to God in chapter 4, so I think there's plenty of good reason to think that um, that it's Jonah. Now, Nineveh. What about Nineveh? We know that Nineveh was a bad place. Um, At the time, it was the largest and greatest city in the world at the time of this book being written. It was a major trading area for the ancient world. I got a map here to pull up. So there at the bottom left, you can see is Joppa, and just above that, I presume, is where Jonah got his, his call from God up in Israel. He was prophet to Israel. So he goes down to Joppa, uh, we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. The city itself, Nineveh, you can see in the top right. Um, it was the ar- oldest and largest city of ancient Assyria. It was situated right on the bank of the Tigris River. You can see... Oh, wow, that's really blurry for you all. I'm sorry. But right up there, just to the west of Nineveh, there is the Tigris, which is a, a large river. Um, and it's situated right in the Fertile Crescent. So the city, Nineveh, had great agriculture and it had great access to uh, fishing, food, and such. And it was situated in a pretty enviable spot. It was geographically situated in such a way that it allowed for for people to come from all over the place and pass through it from basically any direction. It was very much a self-sufficient city. Now, the narrative says that Jonah goes down to Joppa, and boards a ship for Tarshish. Presumably he was in Israel, like I said, at the reception of this word from Yahweh. So he goes just a few miles south to Joppa, as you can see up there, and he sets sail to quite literally for the ancient world. You know, we we hear all the time he went in the opposite direction. That's true, but the magnitude of it is, you know where Tarshish probably was? It's probably in uh, Spain. You know what's What's west of Spain? Ocean. This was literally the end of the world, end of the known world that he's fleeing to. And it might have been even a little further west into Portugal, modern-day Portugal. The point is that when Jonah is told what to do, he ventures to the extremities of the known world to rebel against God. The city of Nineveh was founded by a man that's hardly mentioned in Scripture, but is nonetheless a very notable and consequential person. This person is mentioned in the genealogy of Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis 10, 7 through 12, which is really tiny, it says, The sons of Cush, this is a, the middle of a genealogy in Genesis 10, The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Raama, and Sabtika, the sons of Ra- Raama are Sheba and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh rehaboth ir Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is, the great city. So this guy, Nimrod, he must have been an extraordinarily famous man in the ancient Near East. He was the great-grandson of Noah and was the first mighty man on earth, which means something like a strong tyrant or a, a warrior king. Mighty man is the same term used of the Nephilim in Genesis 6-4. The text in Genesis um, 10 also says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And this probably does not simply mean that he was good at trapping and hunting animals. The phrasing indicates in, in the Hebrew that what he was doing was evil. It was in the face of God, in the face of Yahweh, or to spite Yahweh. The phrase in the face of Yahweh or before the face of Yahweh is notable for us today, because it's essentially the exact same phrase that's used of Jonah when he flees to Tarshish from the face of Noah. I'm sorry, from the face of Yahweh. It is used that I could find three times in the Old Testament. Once of Nimrod, once of Jonah, and once in an unrelated passage in Judges 5.5. The phrase that's used of Jonah perhaps would have caused ancient readers to be reminded of the wicked man, Nimrod, whose actions were described this way. And what Jonah does in fleeing is wrong. It is evil. His actions are like those of the founder of two of the most wicked cities in Scripture, Babel, later Babylon, and Nineveh of the Assyrian Empire. And a short, a short extra-biblical point on Nimrod, and I want to make very, very clear that this is extra-biblical and should be viewed with a very healthy dose of skepticism. But the ancient, in the ancient Mesopotamian epic of Gilgamesh, if you've ever read it or familiar with it, it was written earlier than most of the Old Testament. It's written that Gilgamesh, who was described as a giant man, a large man and a warrior king, was angry at the God who flooded the earth and killed all of his ancestors, so he set out on a quest and would eventually build a very tall tower that could do two things. One, withstand floodwaters so that he wouldn't be killed by that god, and a tower that would get him to the heavens so that he could take revenge on the god that killed his ancestors, the one who flooded the earth. And there's plenty of material out there on whether or not Gilgamesh was a real person or contrived or even if he was Nimrod from Genesis 10. But the point here is to simply make very clear from Scripture and even from ancient secular writings how wicked this city was. It was founded by a God-hating man. And it was founded as an affront, at least Babel was, as an affront to God. And it was filled with people who were loyal to false gods. No matter who founded it, Which was Nimrod, we know that, and later ruled it. In Genesis 11, when the people say, "Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its head in the heavens," the tower was the Tower of Babel, and the city may very well have been both Babel and what what Nimrod later goes on to found Nineveh, which was not very far from Babel. These Ninevites were the worst of the worst, and they didn't know any differently because it's how they were founded. For example, in Jonah chapter 4, we read that there are 120,000 people who don't know their left hands from their right. I'm sure you're familiar with, with that passage. It's the, at the very end, God is telling them, why shouldn't I have pity on this city? There are 120,000 people who don't know their left from right hand. And we often read in scripture about a pagan nation having never heard of Yahweh before Israel comes to them. Think of like uh, Rahab. For instance, uh, as as an example of she knew who Yahweh was, she'd heard of Yahweh, but there's not much reason, at least from the book of Jonah, to think that the people of Nineveh had any clue who he was or that they had ever heard of Yahweh until Jonah shows up, of course. It could be God saying that these people hadn't ever heard of Yahweh, that they don't know left from right, they don't know right from wrongs. They don't know spiritual and moral, right from left, that sort of thing. How could they have turned to him? Something like this in Ecclesiastes 10.2, this, this principle is found. It's also been said that those who cannot tell left hand from right are children and that there are 120,000 children in the city, but the, the word for people here isn't the word for children. It's the word for mankind. Generally, there is a word for children, and it's, it's not used here. Um, and the Old Testament talks in other places like here um, about left and right being indicators of morality, like, again, what you have on the screen, Ecclesiastes 10, 12, the heart of the wise is at his right hand and the heart of the fool on his left. Also, it's worth noting, keep this in mind for, for later sermons from other men, it's worth noting that the whole city was spared. It wasn't just... The children and all of the livestock, because you remember God says there are 120,000 people who don't know their right from left and also much livestock, but he saves the whole, the whole he preserves the whole city. The latter view is the one that um, I lean towards, um, but it's, it's a difficult sentence there that isn't really used anywhere else, so I would probably recant under just a little bit of persecution, But it seems that all the people in the city are simply being described as spiritually ignorant and bankrupt. Okay, so after verse 3, if you're still in Jonah chapter 1, after verse 3, we move from looking backwards to looking forwards, as it were. And at this point, Jonah is on a ship heading for Tarshish, so he thinks. And the text says that Yahweh has caused a great wind on the sea and that there's a great storm to the point that the ship is reckoned as broken, This storm is so bad, the ship is basically toast. This is a tumultuous storm, and the seasoned mariners are terrified and begin to throw cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But where's Jonah? Helping out on deck, lightening the ship, making it sail a little smoother? No. He's sleeping in the hull of the ship. So the captain, the chief, as he's called, the captain wakes him up and implores Jonah to call on his god. Essentially, what the captain's thinking at this point is, okay, clearly one of the gods is angry at someone, so let's all call on our gods to make this stop. We don't know which one it is, but it's got to be one of them. Hey, sleeper, is what the captain calls him. Awake, oh sleeper, call to your god. Let's make this stop. We're all going to die. The ship is basically broken. So after that, they decide to try and divine whose God is angry by casting lots. And interestingly, the lot falls to Jonah. Understandably, and it's almost, almost humorous if it weren't tragic, the mariners are angry at Jonah and demand to know who he is, where he's come from, what he does, what his, what his occupation is. And Jonah responds that he's a Hebrew who fears Yahweh, God of the heavens, who made the sea and dry land. Well, if he made the sea as well as the dry land, can you make him settle it down? Verse 10, we see that Jonah tells them that he is running from the face of Yahweh and that the solution to this mess is for him, as for the, the crew, to pick him up and chuck him overboard. But that's not ultimately the remedy what's remarkable is and I found this really interesting what's remarkable is the fact that the sailors initially don't throw him overboard he says you want this to stop the solution is to pick me up and throw me overboard and they try to row back they don't say okay throw him, they try to row back but the waves and the storm won't allow them to. Now, we've already read that God is the one who sent the waves and the storm, so we can reasonably surmise that it's God preventing them from rowing back. After that failed attempt, the mariners then pray to Yahweh, the text says, again, almost humorous if it weren't tragic, they pray to Jonah's God now, they pray to Yahweh, and say, essentially, please don't kill us, All because of this man, Jonah, and please don't hold us at fault for doing what he said we should do throw him into the sea. Now, does Jonah know why the storm is happening? The answer seems to be yes. Want to fix the storm? Get rid of me. But the storm isn't happening because Jonah is simply alive, it's not there because he's existing and God doesn't like that he's alive. God sent the storm because Jonah was rebelling against Yahweh. He was giving Jonah opportunity to repent. And what's amazing is Jonah knows it. Verse 12 says as much. The right answer should have been repentance and Jonah saying, I have been wrong. Mariners, take me back to the land so that I can go in the correct direction to Nineveh and do what God told me to do. But his mentality seems to be so set in rebellion that he would rather be thrown into the sea and die than repent and go to Nineveh. So the men lift Jonah up and throw him into the sea. And the sea, wow, becomes calm, just like Jonah said. And you read what the fallout of that is? They throw him into the sea, and then the sea becomes calm And these pagan mariners begin to fear Yahweh and make sacrifices to him. These men received quite a sign from God, and it changes their hearts toward him, while Jonah is hardened still. Finally, in chapter 1, we read that Yahweh appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah is in the bowels of the fish three days and three nights. That's how chapter 1 ends. That is an introduction to the book of Jonah. Jonah's told to go somewhere. He flees. God causes a storm to terrorize the men in the boat with Jonah. He chooses death over obedience, and the men eventually agree to toss him overboard just to save themselves. And ultimately, they end up fearing and worshiping Yahweh despite Jonah's horrible representation of God. And Jonah finally is swallowed by a fish and is in there for three days and three nights. Now, there's a question that we might have to consider. Is this true? Is this actually accurate? Did this happen? And we would be impelled to say yes, one, because it's in Scripture, and it's written as literal, as though it happened, and because Jesus himself uses this as an historical reference point. In Matthew twelve man, I should have broken these up more. In Matthew twelve, thirty-eight through forty-one we read, Then a certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we will to see a sign from you. And he, answering, said to them, A generation evil and adulterous seeks a sign, and you will not be given to it. And a sign will not be given to it, except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Men of Nineveh will stand up in the judgment with this generation and will condemn it, for they converted at the proclamation of Jonah. And behold, one greater than Jonah is here. Jesus took this literally. More than that, Jesus saw that this account of Jonah pointed to him. More than that, I think that even the story of Jonah in the boat, literarily, literarily, not literally, literally alludes to Jesus. Uh, here Here are some parallels. In Matthew 8, we already read Matthew 10 there, but in Matthew 8, when Jesus and the disciples get into the boat and a tempest arises, the disciples are terribly fearful, and the boat is described as guess what? being destroyed by the waves, as reckoned as broken, you might say, and they find Jesus sleeping in the boat. When they wake him, he describes them as having little faith, and he rebukes the wind, speaks to the sea, and there's calm. A Jewish reader of this passage might think, gee, that sounds an awful lot like the account of Jonah. Jonah. So when the disciples ask, uh, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They should have recognized that this guy, Jesus, was Yahweh in front of them. This is the God that calmed the seas when Jonah was thrown in. Furthermore, in the ancient world, the sea was considered an analog to death itself um, or Sheol because it's restless, it's unpredictable, and uh, people can't live there. Even Jonah makes this clear when he's praying in chapter 2, and he says, I think in verse 3, it says, I called because of my distress to Yahweh, and he answers me from the belly of Sheol I have cried. Jonah knows where he is. He's not merely inside of a fish. He is in an analog to the grave itself, and this is part of what the sign of Jonah is. Jesus doesn't physically, doesn't only physically go into the belly of the earth, he is going in his spirit into Sheol, the realm of the dead, to proclaim victory to the spirits in prison. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, tells us that explicitly. Jonah's an odd, odd character, because he seems to be both a type and an anti-type of the Messiah. And Jonah, you'll notice in this book, we we love to We love to bring up the the true fact that, you know, uh, the term second chance is used a lot. Jonah had a second chance. Nineveh had a second chance. But what's striking about this book is that Jonah never fully repents in this book. His last words that are recorded in the book, do you remember what they are? They're something like, to do good, and this is Jonah talking to God, to do good is displeasing to me, to death or it could be said, yes, I answering God again, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah never fully repents. And yet, Jonah is some sort of a sign for the Messiah, and the sign is, I think, death and resurrection. But just as Jonah died and went down to Sheol, as he describes it, so also will the Son of Man die and go down to Sheol. But Jesus isn't in rebellion against the Father like Jonah was. He's the perfect Jonah, as it were, doing what Jonah should have done. As Jesus, we might we might imagine, said to the Father, I will go to a land that is wicked and preach for them to repent, for the kingdom is at hand and judgment is near. I'll be put to death, descend into Sheol, and rise again. Just as Jesus knew he would rise again, I think also so did Jonah know that he would. He prays in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Jonah's familiar with resurrection. The story of Jonah is so, so similar to many points of Christ's life on earth, but in the negative, in the bad ways, in the rebellious ways. Jonah seems to be the opposite of the apostles in Acts 16.6. when it says that they had been forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Like, Jonah is forbidden by the Spirit not to speak the word to Nineveh. It's astounding. No plan of God can be thwarted. Jonah, you are going to Nineveh. Through Jonah, God saves the people of Nineveh despite Jonah's wickedness and rebellion Through Jesus, God saves the people of the world because of Jesus' obedience and perfect submission to the Father. Jonah here shows the kind of messenger to the world that we don't want, and he also opens our eyes to the one that we do want, Jesus. We want a messenger who loves the people to whom he's sent not one who avoids them by any means necessary, including being thrown into the sea. And we find that in Christ, and we find so much more in Christ. And the story of Jonah is a story of death and resurrection, so we can now look back and make sense of writings that were unclear before. When David prophetically writes, "'You do not leave my soul in Sheol, nor give your Holy One to see decay,' It is in that moment when he wrote it, speaking of David, in the time of Jesus on earth, during his crucifixion, speaking of Christ, and we can see now that it was true of Jonah as a foreshadowing of the Christ. For three days and three nights while Jonah was in the belly of the fish, he did not see decay. Well, that's interesting. I don't don't know how long I actually didn't look this up and this is kind of me thinking out loud, I don't know how long it takes for giant fish to digest their food. It can't take three whole days. Maybe, I don't know. Nor would the Christ who was for three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. He would not see decay. He resurrected. And all we who believe in him will also ultimately not see decay, but will be raised again to put on immortality. And that's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. The first chapter of this book is such an amazing testament to the faithfulness of God to those upon whom he has set his love. I mean, you think about that. We think about this from Jonah's perspective a lot. Think about it from Nineveh's perspective. What if they got a copy of this book afterwards? How embarrassing for Jonah might that be for the believing Ninevites? Wow. This guy really hated us to the point that he would rebel against God, wish himself to be dead, to avoid telling us that judgment is coming. We would have repented. We did repent. The New Testament says we repented. Jesus said it's better for us than it is for these Pharisees because we believed. Why would Jonah not want to tell us? you think Jonah can stop God from reaching the people of Nineveh? No, obviously not. God used Jonah despite Jonah's hatred of these people and his resentment of God's grace. May we never be blind to the fact that God can redeem anyone he wants, whoever he so chooses. This is why we wholly believe that we are to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations because We don't know which wicked people, which is all of them, all people are wicked, but we don't know which of them God will choose to redeem. And more than that, redeem through us. We don't get to choose that. We're called to obey. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Whether you're called to come to him or to go out into the world for him, go out with joy knowing that Just as Christ was raised, so also we will be raised, and we will see those to whom we preach raised, because God promises that. He gives the increase. But we go out with joy, knowing, again, just as Christ was raised, just as Jonah was raised, for God's purposes, so also we will be raised incorruptible. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for the for the story of Jonah that you've had recorded and that you've had faithfully passed down and transmitted to us throughout all of these centuries and it is so easy, it would be so easy for us to say I am glad, Lord thank you that I am not like Jonah but being honest with ourselves with myself I know that more often than not, I am more like Jonah, avoiding talking to people, avoiding telling the gospel to others, and it's humbling and it is humiliating, and we pray that you would give me and all of us here extra grace and extra mercy and extra boldness to go and proclaim to lost souls your gospel, and that we would be faithful to be obedient to the great commission that you've given to us to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them and baptizing them. And we, we will praise you more and more for it and are, again, grateful for this book that you've given to us. And I pray that you would bless the next few sermons that come from it and that your hand would be on the men bringing them and that we would all be brought back here safely either this evening or next.